Greetings and welcome to Let's Break Good. I'm excited to welcome, as my guest today, Miriam Sidibi. Over the past 20 years, Miriam has been a leader on social and health issues across Asia and Africa. She has held a number of interesting positions and roles in both the public and private sector. Since 2006, she has worked with the global consumer goods company Unilever. At Unilever, Miriam has helped build a multi-million dollar brand and has that has benefited the lives of hundreds of millions of people across 55 different countries. Miriam, who is originally from Mali, is currently on sabbatical from her role at Unilever and is a senior fellow at the Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Welcome, Miriam. I want to break free. Hi, Joe. Very nice to be um, live with you today and to get a chance to talk about my experience, but also probably my reflection in this year at Harvard, thinking about what it actually means to be an entrepreneur and what it means to be able to try to do good in this world, um, whilst um, obviously generating profits, um, but also just thinking about what the world actually needs in terms of um, the new patterns and what the future of work really looks like. Excellent. I'm really looking to dig into this with you. Um, but my first question is, I want to kind of look back and go back to the start of your career. And I want to know, when did you first realize that you had to have purpose in your career? So <clears throat> my career started differently because I was going to, I mean, I built an entire career around purpose. So it wasn't that I thought I needed to have purpose in my career. I always knew that I wanted to do good and I wanted to to have a, um, um, a career that was built around service um, to people that didn't necessarily have a voice or people that were less fortunate than I did. Um, so I've always known that. So this is, you know, I, I all my choices in um, university degrees of wanting to be a, an engineer, an agricultural engineer, then um, a master's in water and waste engineering and then a PhD in public health was always because I wanted to make a difference in, in the life of, of people that were less fortunate than me. So purpose was always a starting point. Now, I think um, what's different in my, in my career path is how I have found the best uh, way in which you could practice effective altruism is probably where um, I have made a, a different jump. So rather than going to practice um, this uh, purpose into a nonprofit or an NGO or the UN, I decided to go into uh, multinational organizations like Unilever and try to find the best way to make sure that this purpose is embedded into my day job. Um, so I think that's been the other way around rather than, um, you know, at which point did I decide that purpose was important? Purpose has always been my driving force. So I, 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 I did feel, though, that as I was chasing purpose um, or, or an effective way in which to address my purpose or to address my help to the less fortunate, that there were skills that were required to do that. And I, one of the most interesting things for me, and that came as a surprise, is that I didn't, I never actually thought of marketing as a skills or a discipline that could eventually be of use to the less fortunate and the, the, the people didn't have a voice. Um, that came as a complete surprise. Um, yet when I spent 15 years in Unilever and I spent 15 years in marketing, I realized that it was a discipline that had the um, that had the, the 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 you know the opportunity, but also the risks of actually transforming millions of people and 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 sending them to you know lifestyle norms that could be of a huge 
uh, negative to them, whereas you could actually get them to do, uh, um, you know, to actually transform that into positive. So the difference between, you know, obviously having a healthier diet versus having a diet that actually can make a difference in your life and your productivity and, and, and building generations of people that practice a better and healthier lifestyle. And I think most of the brands in this world um, today are trying to figure out how they build purpose at the center of their communication. But unfortunately, not um, all of them have an effective long-term journey around what this purpose actually means. Excellent. There's a, a lot to unpack there. Really interesting. Well, first of all, I thought it was interesting that purpose has always been something that's been intrinsic for you. So there was never a question of, do I want purpose in my career or not? No, it was going to be there from the start. Another interesting thing that I heard you say was that you made a conscious choice that you know you didn't want to see how you could drive purpose in the you know nonprofit multilateral world but rather in the private sector in business was there an experience or something that kind of gave you that direction well i have to say i mean I, when i finished my university my masters and my um, you know as i was doing my phd you know i spent a lot of time in in um humanitarian world and and in uh, you know in 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 countries that were ravaged by war and and the aftereffects of civil 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 conflict civil society conflict i felt um you know and i was working with humanitarian organizations and ngos um, trying to respond to the you know the the the, the needs of toilets and hand washing and and you know and making sure that people have access to basic food and shelter and you know as I was transitioning for some, from some of these emergencies to more longer-term development system, I, I felt highly frustrated by the term beneficiary. I just felt that, you know, there was something undignified um, with being a beneficiary. And as an African working in Africa at the time, for a lot of these NGOs that were, you know, Americans or Europeans, um, you know, with donor money from these two countries as well, I, I, I just, or these two continents, I, I just you know, could recognize the the need and therefore the, the support that was happening, but there was something undignified, not long-term, that transformed you into some sort of, a, you know, like a, a, a begging kind of situation, which I, I really didn't enjoy. And then I felt there's got to be something more longer-term about this. There's got to be something about, um, you know, looking beyond uh, being a beneficiary, but being much more active in in the way you 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 know you can participate in your own development that is not um, you know decided by somebody sitting in London or or in you know in in New York um, that decides which grant goes to where and then and we're just a mere executor of that. So that for me got to a point where I knew I wanted to get out of that. So. I um I decided I needed more skills to really be make a difference. So that's when I enrolled to go do my PhD in public health. And I thought, you know, if I have you know specific skill sets in behavior change and specific skill sets in in learning how to be managing of programs, um, you know, that I will get to a point where you know the leadership position will allow me to 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 be more much more proactive in how I, I deliver this aid. So that was my initial thinking. To be honest, I never thought about the private sector then. Um, as I finished my doctorate and I had done my thesis on hand washing with soap and, and, and how to get kids to wash their hands and to use their school toilets, I realized that, you know, I, I got a chance to interact with Unilever who, you know, met me and understood the, my research and thought, well, we could really do with somebody like you joining us. Um, and I, 
you know, they created this position for me um, at the time, which we, 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 you know, we, we, I jointly influence, obviously we jointly influence in writing these terms of reference to think about coming to join the marketing team, uh, team, but to influence the marketing team with the, the, the behavior change knowledge that I had just gotten from my doctorate in public health, specifically looking at hand washing with soap. And so that's how I joined. I mean, I literally joined, um, you know, thinking, uh, not really knowing what I was going to do. So it wasn't like I made that decision. I And, you know, I was finishing my PhD. I was also in need of money. It was a job. And I thought it would be an interesting ride for like a year or two to understand how the private sector, you know, what, what what's going on in the soap company, what could I eventually do there. Um, and and before you know it, I spent 15 years. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and then I thought, wow, I cannot believe that it's been this long um, of having, having, having driven this from Unilever. And then I realized as I was doing this that every day I was actually making a difference. Every day I was impacting marketing with processes, with values that were making a difference in terms of transforming and landing purpose in the everyday work um, that we were doing. So, uh, you know, it, it, I did not set out to say, I am going to do this from the private sector. As I was sitting in the private sector, I realized that there was so much opportunity, so much resources that were lacking in the development field that we could steer towards, um, you know, the most vulnerable and a chance to be able to impact a company with such uh, uh, um, uh, um, muscles power towards doing good that it just felt like the right place to continue working from. It's as simple as that. Excellent. Well, one thing I want to first highlight that you said, which is something we talk a lot about on the podcast, which is that there was a word in kind of the development lingo, the beneficiary that didn't resonate with you. And I think that's something we're really trying to change people's mindset on. One of my goals is to destroy the idea of first world and third world. Uh, I think that language really does matter in the setup and how we look at the social good activities we're trying to design and deploy. Um, so I really kind of resonate with the way that you described that. Uh, I'd like you maybe now to go a little more into that Unilever journey that you've touched on. Uh, I'm especially wondering if when you, you know, first got in and you started doing this work around hand washing and, you know, the product that you were building and the marketing you were doing, uh, what the mindset of the company was in the beginning and how that may have transformed over time as you got results uh, with your kind of initiatives inside of Unilever. So I think um, when I first got in, um, the, the, the CSR department still existed. So it was all very much around consumer, uh, uh, you know, responsibilities and, 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 you know, we were funding programs, left, right centers on different aspects of, of, you know, trying to do good, but not necessarily aligned to the product. The more I spent time within Lifeboy, which was my initial job, obviously, is to be the Lifeboy social mission manager um, for, you know, and director that I held for 10 years. I am, um, I, you know, I, I started showing them that, you know, you could start impacting from inside the brand and that from inside marketing, you didn't need, you, you, you know, you could start actually driving a lot of this good internally by also aligning with some very important partnerships that will actually give you more um, a, a double-sided impact for the brand as well as, um, you know, for the consumer. And, and obviously your consumer were people that needed their help because you were, we were looking at Asia, Africa, and some of the same countries that the public health world was looking at in terms of impact of diseases. So I am, um, 
I, you know, I think the more they started realizing, um, it, it started making sense. And then, you know, I joined in 2008 and in 2010, by the time Paul arrived, and then, uh, we, you know, we, they started thinking about what the USLP new framework, the Unilever Sustainable Living Frame uh, Plan was put in place, which was, you know, a blueprint of trying to do good through the brands and creating a framework of business that allows you to do that through the brands. Um, as that was actually established, it started making so much sense to them that Lifeboy obviously was starting to be, well, had been a pioneer on how you do that, how you actually drive such big goals through your brands, how everything about your brand is making a difference to societies and to the world and to the consumers. Um, you know, and, and, and that, you know, it, the way people engage in terms of wanting hand washing with soap, for example, in order to de- reduce disease, you know, when you decide to wash your hands, you decide to wash your hands because it smells nice because, you know, you're like the color of the soap because the soap and the water are in the same place. And all those are things that are actually achieved by marketing and marketing a soap product effectively because, you know, there is no distinction if you're a soap manufacturer about making sure that that soap is, um, it, it, you know, is being sold because by hand washing with soap. Because what else could you possibly do if you're a bar of soap whose positioning is on hygiene? So I, I you know, I think for me, um, what where I see the, where I saw the changes is when the CSR department was disbanded, where the USLP was actually uh, uh, laid out, and then the framework of operation and business was actually done in such a way that it allowed you to be able to 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 deliver on 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 these programs. And I think for me that made all the difference, absolutely made all the difference, um, because all of a sudden here was a framework that allowed us to be able to accelerate where we were going with 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 our brands. Um, all of a sudden there was an entire corporation whose muscles were actually being put towards opening doors for us to be able to land these programs and at the scale that were required and necessary. And I think for me that made it absolutely fantastic. Excellent. So there's two things that I'm wondering if for the listeners, you can go into a little bit more uh, in depth. First is the product that you mentioned, which was Life Buoy Soap, uh, which has sort of been, I think, a vehicle that you have used to you know, save hundreds of thousands of lives and impact millions. So I'm hoping you could maybe talk to the audience who might not know a little bit about Life Buoy Soap, how it started, how you picked it up, how you kind of use that as your, your vehicle for change. And then you mentioned a name, Paul. And I know who Paul is. That's Paul Pullman, who was the CEO for Unilever. So I'm wondering after you talk a little bit about Life Buoy Soap and how that was used inside Unilever towards uh, you know breaking good, what the role of Paul Pullman as CEO uh, also played. Well, Lifebuoy soap is uh, the world's largest uh, um, antibacterial soap in the world. It's um, it's a red bar that's been around and that was created in 1894 um, when William Esket Lever was trying to fight cholera outbreaks in the UK. Um, and basically, it then went everywhere. The British went, so probably India was the biggest market in which it it, it you know it became super famous and uh, the the jingle tandurushka uh, uh, um, health is basically known by almost every indian they know this the song before they actually know their national anthem so it's a, it's a it's a soap that's been you know widely made available at least in south asia and then now moving into africa i i am um, you know when i joined the brand was still a regional brand that was you know like a, a 200 million euro brand or so that was you know i had its fame but you know was having a 
hard time figuring out, you know, what their positioning was. I think with very smart and able marketing um, um, heads that we had, we started um, obviously putting purpose at the center of what it is we wanted to do. And that, you know, the need for getting people to wash their hands and making that center as a way for us to save lives was going to be the driving force and the purpose of this brand. So I, what we, you know, we decided in 2010 with the USLP introduction, the Universal Sustainable Living Plan, that we would reach 1 billion people with a hand-washing program that would change their, their behaviors. Um, this was in 2010. We're in 2008, 19. We've reached 426 million. Um, you know, we probably are not going to reach 1 billion with direct programs, but what we've done also as we started this journey is to realize that, you know, a lot of everything else around marketing that we do is about um, changing uh, uh, behaviors, that your TVC has a sort of impact, that your that everything else has, a, has an impact as well, and that that's really important on how you measure the kind of um, positioning and everything that you're doing around the brand as well, that it's a holistic approach to it. It's not, you know, if your packaging is not right, if your your your, tele, your, your TVC is not right, then it's very difficult to be able to, to, to do that. So I, I, I um, you know, this is the journey in which we got we we got in this one billion journey. I mean, we've established that we're doing partnerships, partnerships with Gavi, partnerships with you know Diffid and the donors, uh, partnerships with government, getting access into every school child in in South Africa, for example. All those are really important um, aspects that we've put in place um, in terms of the partnerships. So I, I um. You know, I basically uh, spend a lot of time trying to figure out, uh, uh, you know, how do we get the most effective partnerships, but how do you get the most effective um, behavior change approach internally that is now funded by part of the brand's marketing resources to make sure that we are changing every consumer's behavior change with every bar of soap that they sell. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, Paul Pullman and like how his vision and maybe what role he played in, you know, because I would say that Unilever is is out front on the idea of that profit and purpose can go together. A lot of corporates that I've worked with believe that profit goes in one corner and purpose goes in the other corner and they shouldn't mix uh, and that, you know, doing social good should be totally separate from making money. So I'm wondering, again, how you could you could talk a little bit about how you were able to bring that profit and purpose together. And again, anything maybe Paul Pullman as a, a CEO had any kind of role in trickling that down from the top of the company? Well, I think, um, um, you know, Paul Pullman arrival in Unilever um, made a huge change by the establishment of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan because what it did is it created a, a, a blueprint with now an, um, an externally approved target, which the entire company had to work towards. So there wasn't like a chance to now say, oh, you know what? We've got a problem with our advertising and we'd like our advertising or our marketing resources. And we want to just do a promotion around buy free um, or, you know, buy free, get five, you know, and that's what you wanted to do, that you had to be able to reach your target of one billion. So it used the entrepreneurial spirit that already exists and creative spirit inside the company to be able to get and be part of this journey to make sure that the changes are actually happening. And I think that's where 
the conversation started becoming extremely, extremely interesting. Um, it, 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 you know, just getting to a sense that you, you know, you, 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 you know, you, you now had the authorization of the leadership to be able to be to think very creatively on how we were going to reach the niche people that we would not necessarily reach because it was mandated by the top um, management that this was something that we needed to do. And I think what Paul Pullman and his team and the team did extremely well was to create a framework of external organization in which one could operate to be able to then land this business model more effectively than we've ever seen before. And I think, you know, the kind of transformational partnership, uh, you know, being in the SDG uh, um, uh, panel as well, just making sure that some of these indicators in the SDGs are part of that. All these are conversations that were absolutely critical. Um, in terms of uh, um, in terms of making sure that we 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 land um, uh, uh, you know this one billion target, and I think that's what Paul Pullman did. That's very unique. Um, you know the the fact that you know purpose and and profit go hand in hand in Unilever. To be honest, uh, Unilever benefits from a lot of amazing brands who have in their DNA already purpose. <laughs> because if you are a toothpaste company, I mean, what else could you possibly do with toothpaste except getting people to brush their teeth? You know, if you are a so producer company, of course, you're going to do a lot. But what I think he's done that's very unique is exactly creating that that um, a blue blue point, um, you know, framework that allows you to be able to to to, to then, you know, generate and, and 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 galvanize an entire culture of sustainability all throughout. And I think that's where it's absolutely fantastic and great to know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. That that idea of creating culture, creating the soil where these kind of things can grow, uh, when you have the perfect mix of the top down, the bottom up inside the company, uh, you know, I think that's definitely a, a perfect storm to kind of bring together that purpose and profit and behavior change to, you know, do do good and do well. Uh, another thing you mentioned was about how important partnerships were to growing uh, your project inside of Unilever. I'm, I'm interested, uh, especially on your perspective of public-private partnership uh, and how that can be used to, you know, break good and do these kind of incredible uh, projects. Yeah. And, um, I mean, look – We've had amazing partnerships in in the journey. Some of them have worked very well, some of them not so. Um, but I think the the essence of partnership is to create an a win 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 essence for win for the consumer, win for the partner, and win for the most vulnerables um, that you know that the the community at large actually ends up serving. So I think you know if you keep that in mind, and then you start thinking about you know what is a mutual interest, a mutual interest that partners and uh, brands can bring to the table. And if you can find somehow, um, um, you know, an, a, 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 a point of, of, of interest somehow between these two together, then this is where the partnership starts becoming interesting. So because there'll be a range of things that they're not interested in. You know, partners are not going to be interested in, you know, how I take the, you know, the fragrance and what packaging am I using and, you know, how do I keep my soap together? Do I make it ladder a lot longer? But ultimately, the partners may not be interested in that, but the consumer is. So if you want to get your consumer to wash your hands with soap more regularly, the more I spend on getting my brand to be successful, aspirational, wanting to be used, the more chances you'll have for your consumers who end up being some of the beneficiaries of the partners to want to actually use this product. So I think this is where 
the superpower for me of multinationals um, really is, is in being able to bend what their marketing and these approaches are by changing some of the clear, you know, by inputting some processes and values at the center of that. That's where it becomes really and super interesting. Um, I think, um, you know, when I think about some of the partnerships that we've done, we've done some amazing partnerships with, for example, with Sight Savers, we've got a partnership on, on trachoma prevention and eradication where, you know, we are a soap company, we are teaching kids to wash their hands with soap. They want to make sure that they reduce um, trachoma, which is one of the world's leading blindness disease. And we, for that, you need to get people to wash their face more regularly. So face washing and hand washing, we've linked that together. And in some of the most prevalent country in trachoma, we've managed to do something. So that's one partnership. The other partnerships that we've done is partnership directly with the government to be able to have access to you know, 15,000 schools and teach hygiene education, for example, to every single school child in a country, for example. It works for us because obviously we're building a new generation of, of future hand washers, but it also works for the government who has got limited resources that they could actually spend on, on, um, on, on, on driving hygiene education at that scale. Um, so those are, you know, examples of the type of partnerships that we've done. Um, I'm thinking about what are the partnerships we've done. So, I mean, those are the type examples of partnerships that we've had. Great. So one thing that we try to do on the podcast is also part of breaking good is looking at when we, sometimes we try to do good, but it, you know, there are things that don't work out or are pitfalls to avoid. So you kind of uh, alluded to this idea of there are some partnerships that haven't worked out. So if you're someone who is starting to analyze, should I partner with this group? You know, again, I don't need you to name names or, you know, put anyone on blast, but anything in terms of, you know, people, again, who are trying to do good, but maybe fall short and any certain partnerships that haven't worked out, what have you learned from those? And what, if someone is, you know, thinking about what kind of partnerships they want to create, some things that for them to think about. Well, I, I, I think, to be honest, the world has changed a lot. Um, when we were starting 10 years ago, I think, you know, a lot of the UN partners had in their charters never to partner with directly brands because it was against their charter to be seen to be promoting a particular brand, for example. And that made it very difficult because there was a lack of comprehension of the need for us to drive business. And therefore, not only a lack of comprehension, but a lack of respect of how important the sustainability of these partnerships would lie in our ability to generate a real meaningful business model at the heart of that. And I think that for me is absolutely critical. Um, you know, and, and I always come in with very clear, transparent motives on if I cannot drive a meaningful uh, partnership uh, um, angle that allows me to be able to drive business motives, then I have to be careful. You know, and I think that for me is absolutely critical. Um, uh, uh, you know, and, and we've seen many partnerships at the beginning that were limited in their ability to drive success because, you know, there was such a, a, a you know, a skepticism and a distrust on the partnership from the partner's angle on what exactly we could do with the private sector that they, they didn't want to really spend time with us. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't understand what we brought to the table. And frankly, they didn't care because for them, every soap was the same. There was no particular difference and they really didn't want to have to give us any sort of, um, uh, you know, competitive advantage in trying to do that. I think today they're understanding a bit more what value we bring to the table, how we've invested so much in understanding and in embedding behavior change in the way we do what we are trying to do, that it matters to us to make sure that our 
our, our consumers are actually changing hand washing behavior. So all of these are super important in how we've 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 um, we've 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 driven that. Um, yeah. So I think ultimately this becomes absolutely uh, critical. So I would say another partnership uh, that I won't mention on by name <laughs> that actually failed and mm-hmm. ended up causing so much is when. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of free money out there, and you know, we ended up getting ourselves into a free donor. Um, uh, well, not free. Uh, doing a, a partnership where we had some donor money coming in, and we didn't deliver, for example, on the level of hand washing behavior change that was required, and then the donor ended up cutting the money. And you know, the the repercussion of that was not about the money. I can tell you that, but it was about the perception within Unilever that actually our programs were not good enough and that we were not making the kind of impact that was uh, required. And it created so much skepticism and it just pushed us back into an old style top of partnerships where what you do is you sponsor a public sector, uh, a partner, an NGO to go deliver the program because you don't trust your ability to change those behavior change and you just need the validity and the credibility rather than pushing yourself to be able to make those changes. And I think it is really important that we clarify, um, you know, as the roles are changing and, 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 and in terms of how difficult this journey and this skepticism will lie, how difficult it will actually be to be able to make those things happen. I'm totally fascinated by this, uh, Miriam. You know, this this stigma, I call it a stigma. I see it all the time on both sides that if you're in a nonprofit, you're doing social good, you don't trust business. And there's also, I think, a stigma sometimes within business that those doing social good, um, they're charity cases and they just need a handout. And you've really hit at that. And it's something I talk a lot about on the on the podcast. And also the other word you use is the skepticism that could this be real? Even if they're saying they want to help their business, I'm skeptical of that. And what you've said is that you have to be choosing your partnerships carefully because especially I think early on is the results of your early partnerships or of any big name partnerships will reverberate way further than, you know, you might think initially. So I I find that super interesting uh, about this kind of, you know, uh, stigma that can be there. Is there anything in particular you think that helps break down that stigma and that skepticism? I think I think there's only a long-term commitment. I think the longer people see you being committed, the longer they then realize that you really mean what you do and that you you are committed, you're loyal to the cause and that you know you're principled. And you know and uh, for me it's very simple. A principle isn't a principle until it costs you money. So if you are willing to put a certain percentage of your resources um towards making the program happen um regularly and without compromise then I think you are really trying to build purpose at the center of it because don't, don't underestimate how much learning one will do into, you know, for example, driving brand communications that are based on purpose in the future to the consumer by learning from what you are learning every day from those, uh, you know, those programs that you're doing on the ground with the, the, the consumers and the populations that you are dealing with. And I think for me, that's the that's the 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 real important starting point. And you know, when I think about these partners, for me, it makes you know so many people internally in Unilever or in other big companies tells you, well, this purpose thing just doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. You know, it's just like a feel good, and yeah, we're doing this because Pullman wants it, but actually, I don't really believe in it. So, and then I, I go see the the NGO people, and they're saying these people just want to make money. 
out of us. You know, we, they're all here to want to make money. And sometimes I've always wanted to make those people meet the people who say within Unilever it doesn't sell. And just kind of be like, why don't the two of you just meet? And why don't I just leave you in this room <laughs> together? Just, you know, get to a point to maybe agree because that's just like the, the difficulty thing. You know, it, it, it's like, you know, not every, and, and I haven't, you know, and I haven't met yet in Unilever a brand manager that gets up and that says, today, I can't wait until I can screw up the world. I mean, everybody wants to do good if given a chance. I think the point is, how do you get everybody to use their skill set to the best of their ability to make sure that they can make that happen? I think that's the reality. And that's what we're looking at. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I think you mentioned before that I believe that sort of helps to break down the walls and can get the nonprofit and the, the you know, the, the maybe the social entrepreneur, I would call it, the person working, you know, entrepreneuring and has an entrepreneurial spirit in this, you know, in the nonprofit or social sector, and what I would call a social entrepreneur. Uh, and an entrepreneur, which you and I know, are someone who acts sort of like an in- entrepreneur, but inside the company and therefore is an entrepreneur. So I'm wondering if you've seen that or you could, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, the partnerships between the the people who are thinking social entrepreneurially in the the social impact sector and those who are thinking social entrepreneurially inside their company. I think being an entrepreneur is super hard. Um, I think I think people don't realize how much um, diplomacy diplomatic skills are required to be able to align what companies want versus what um, you know. Uh, uh, what the needs are and how much you need to constantly mitigate to make that happen. But the reality of the purpose-led uh, uh, job that you will do in the future will need to be created. I think it's about not giving up. It's about making sure that you, you, you know, you, you have to trust in the good of humanity and the good of even companies to want to make a difference because genuinely it costs you less more money to do the wrong thing than to do the right thing today. And I think that's what the Unilever case study of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan is clearly showing. And I think that's what's so important and so interesting to be able to bring to the table. Yeah, I always talk about the business case, that you have to start with the business case if you want to you know, have your company to break good. You can't do it from the you know feel-good side. You have to do it. I like what you said there was that it'll cost more money to do the wrong thing in the long term, and sometimes in the short term. And I think that's a powerful, powerful argument uh, to make. No, absolutely. Absolutely, it will. And, um, and you know, and, and, but I think also morally, I don't know anybody that's happily, you know, working for companies that are actually screwing up the world. I mean, you know, I do think that given a chance, a lot of the generations that I'm meeting want to be able to make a difference in their everyday. They want to use their skills, their expertise to try to make a difference. And I think this is where it starts becoming absolutely critical. Yeah, one of the, I think biggest arguments for companies to break good is if you want the top talent, if you want your employees engaged, if you want them motivated, this has to be part of the DNA of your company. Again, it can't be something you just say, hey, look, there's our corporate charity, our corporate foundation, our CSR off in the corner there. Feel good. We're doing that. It has to be part of the mainline business, has to be part of the DNA. And then I I really think you see a difference in you know, the employees. Um, I've met a lot of people who worked at Unilever and that kind of enthusiasm is there versus some other companies. I've definitely, um, you know, people I spoke with at different companies. So it's absolutely a, a key point. 
Um, so I want to now move on to a little bit more about you and your professional network. I'm really interested in that. I know you probably have a network within Unilever, but I'm also inspired by some of the other things you're doing beyond your day job. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your professional network, the kinds of things you're doing, and maybe what, how, what is the kind of also crossover benefit from having both that social purpose internally at your day job, but also getting involved in these other uh, initiatives and networks? No, I think that's a very important uh, point. And I don't think today a day job uh, justifies you not you know, being part of either your communities or societal uh, um, commitments that one needs to be at. So I am involved in, in many things. I'm on the, the board of trustee of WaterAid, which is the, the world's largest uh, civil organizations on water and sanitation. Um, and I enjoy, you know, once a quarter, you know, being on their, their board meetings, understanding how the organization is moving um, and getting a sense that I could still impact there on, you know, a nonprofit, but thinking about where that, that's going. It's probably a very respectful organization that I've, I've absolutely enjoyed my association with. So I, you know, I'm involved in that. I've been involved in a lot of the Lancet Commission for the Future of Health in Africa because most people don't, you know, I mean, I've been sitting in Unilever, but I'm still a public health professional and I do want to continue having a relationship with my peers within that sector to be able to influence what public health policy um, conversations are going to take place and, and therefore what the role of the private sector will be in terms of shaping the future of health in Africa, for example, or in the world will end up being. I am, um, you know, obviously I'm a mom <laughs> and I'm a wife. Um, so I, you know, I have three kids and I'm really busy trying to, you know, make sure that they're, you know, they, they are turning out to be a decent human being uh, in this world, contributing to the world as well. So that in itself, I, I, I think it should not be taken for, taken for granted at all in our ability to, to, you know, obviously learn from our children, but also bring back what, you know, you know, this into our everyday job as well in terms of the challenge for that. And obviously this year, I've taken a year out in a sabbatical at Harvard, learning, thinking about what it actually means to have done this work, how difficult it is, how much of a challenge in a creative space that I've created myself, create a bit of a safe space to actually look and say, look, this thing has been really hard, really hard on me to constantly go against the grain, that every now and again, you go through this imposter syndrome, an imposter syndrome that's anyway natural for most women, because most women have an imposter syndrome on their don't believe that they need to be where they are. But a double imposter syndrome when you are a public health professional having evolved in marketing, but yet not being the person in charge of the PL or not yet being the, the general manager with the, the formal power, but but having a lot of informal power within the, organ within the organization. And I think that's a double imposter syndrome that one has to constantly have to battle with and chase. Um, and, and, you know, and that's the reality of being an entrepreneur also is, you know, having to overcome this daily uh, fears of, of, you know, not being the best because you don't even know you, you're trying to be the best of what, because <laughs> that is not clearly defined. Um, and therefore, you know, realize that that creates immense stress and immense, um, uh, uh, um, you know, backlash sometimes because you constantly have to feel brave and be brave to make the world change and the world then push it to where it is. So I, I, um, 
I, you know, I feel like, you know, obviously I have kept one leg into academia, one leg, I'm an honorary lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine as well. So, I, you know, one leg in academia, one leg um, thinking about what the public sector is still doing between the NGO, the UN, and being as part of those conversations. But then, you know, making sure that, you know, within my peers in the private sector, when it is time to either change jobs or when I'm thinking about that is what, 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 where are those jobs going to be? You know, who is going to hire somebody like me? Because you don't know really what you are. You just know that you've developed a lot of amazing skill sets at persuasions and at pushing boundaries and at being brave. And then, you know, but you are not necessarily the general manager or you are not necessarily the marketeer and you're not necessarily, you know, the corporate comms person. You are the person that somehow um, connects everybody. You're the person somehow that pushes and gives the vision and inspires. And I'm not sure what that person is called um, uh, in the future. <laughs> you know, I, and I don't know. And, and, and frankly, to be honest, I've tried not to care because otherwise I wouldn't have the necessary energy to get up every morning and keep going at my business. Um, but, um, you know, the truth is, you know, every now and again, you have to stop and think this through and think, would I have done this dif- differently? Would I have just joined in and been a, a marketeer and, and do, and do just marketing? Um, or would we have done that? But I, I've understood that, you know, the richness in most disciplines in this world is your ability to merge other values and processes that are borrowed from other disciplines. And I think if you are able to do that, um, then that's when you can really truly change the world. What you're saying is super energizing, and I totally agree. There's no title to it. Someone's like, well, what job description should I be looking for if I want to do this? There is no job description. Um, you create it for yourself, and even if what they call you at your job doesn't mean that's the title of what you're doing. Uh, so that totally resonates with me. I, I really like that you also said not only do you have to be a good employee – but you also have to be a good citizen in your community. I think that's overlooked a lot in this day and age, especially I'm working for this multinational, this global company. Uh, why would I need to be a citizen in my community? But I, I do think it keeps you rooted and helps you build that network. And you also mentioned taking time to reflect and regenerate. Uh, another thing in our connected world, you could be working 24-7. You could go seven days a week you know, doing work all the time you know, having your phone by your side, but taking that time off. And it's something that our, you know, our last guest, Get Bullock, talked about as well as for your mental wellness, for your longevity, you have to take that time to reflect and regenerate. Uh, but you've built this amazing network. So I guess my follow-up question here is, uh, what kind of tips would you give to someone who's trying to build their network? How do you go out and find these opportunities that you've gotten involved in? Uh, what, what's the first step someone could take or where should they be looking? Well, I mean, let me understand this question right. Is it first steps in trying to 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 be a merger of disciplines? First steps in what? <laughs> so I'm a professional. Say I'm a young professional. I've just started out at my my job, and I'm in the day to day, and I'm like, well, I want more. And obviously, everyone looks at me in my current position here as one thing. So I need to go out in the world and build a, a network to start to expand what I'm going to be able to do in my professional career. So when they get that, how should they look, you know, where should they look to, or do you have any advice to someone who's trying to build a, you know, a professional network, not just inside their job, but outside of it? I think it's about creating, finding what your passion is. My passion has always been clear that it's somewhere at the intersection of societal impact and, and, um, and, and public health. 
And then, you know, so I was always really clear that that's because I believe that, you know, health is the foundation of social justice, that you can't really start social justice without having a healthier society. So for me, that's the starting point, having access to equitable health care and, and, you know, and, and, and being able to shape people towards having healthier lifestyle, lifestyle norms. So I think for me, that was always the, the starting point. Um, I think identifying what your what your 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 passion is and where you feel you want to be you know making a difference and then i think educating yourself educating yourself to know that you know factually you are on top of where you need to be that you understand what you're trying to make an impact on not just talking about it but then identifying what are the right skill sets that you are building that eventually you'll be able to give towards the purpose and the passion that you've identified i think that those are the starting point because you know there's a lot of well meaning people out there that want to volunteer their time, but they don't actually have bright skill sets to give. And I think for me, that's still a real big problem. I think I would rather have the best accountant in the world later on in, you know, for six months in a ministry of health somewhere, helping me rethink the finances and the, and the accountability of my ministry than, you know, for six months time and help them get some sort of like great satisfaction. But I think ultimately it all goes back to having the right skill sets first. So I would say that is the best way to be effective. The best way to be effective is to build flawless skill sets in a path and also build up your passion and your purpose on the side by being on top, reading what you want, um, getting involved into conversations. And we have everything at our disposal to do that. I mean, between, you know, TED Talks and, and, and social networks and, and, um, you know, volunteering time, it's, it's, it's possible to continue developing a purpose and a passion that is not linked to your skills building. And I really believe that having very good skill sets is super important in order to build up anything else that you want to do in the future. Great. So start with your passion, which is something we've talked about in the podcast before. So that was great. Uh, and then working on your skills, getting educated. And I think you're right. It's once you have your passion and you're building your skills, a lot of it comes naturally. There's so many different outlets, you know, on social media, the news, you can find ways to get involved. So I think that was great advice. Uh, my next question as we're getting towards the end of our interview is about what are you breaking good on today? Um, in particular, I saw some really cool photos of a of a bakery in Nairobi that you're involved with. So I'd love to hear about that. Uh, so I'd like to hear what are you breaking good on today, and if you could talk a little bit about that that project. Oh wow! I'd love okay, yeah. So I didn't know you, you you saw that. Yeah. So we that's our family business. Um, my husband and I set out on an entrepreneurial journey. He's a, I mean, he he graduated from Cornell Hotel Schools, and you know, after a couple of years of working in big um, international multinational hotel companies, he was. Like I need to be able to do more, so we decided to embark on a on a on a baking business. So we've opened a, a bakery called Le Grenier Pain, which is basically a license that we got for Africa to operate in from France, and it's a hundred percent production staff from Kenya. So all our staffs are actually. Kenyan local staff that we send to France to get trained and then that come back and come up with innovation, innovative products that merge, um, you know, French skill sets as well as uh, African ingredients to come up with, you know, amazing uh, tree tomato macaroon, for example, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, mm. and, you know, top, top of the class uh, baguettes and, 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 and French croissants. And, you know, I mean, we're now opening our second one in Nairobi and, you know, we've got an expansion plan in a couple of countries and, um, and a baking school that we have 
um, grooming as well. So that's a side hustle, as I would like to call it, as we call it in Nairobi. Um, it's a side hustle, but, you know, it is an important family uh, business that, you know, my husband is leading in his day job um, and, and, and trying to move us to that. But I think it's been, it's been really, um, uh, you know, energizing to know that we are contributing something that's got longevity in Africa, where we're building real African talent as well, and we are providing jobs to you know we've we've got about fifty employees now and and growing and and being able to pull together you know everything that we've got in you know in my understanding of marketing or branding this of of you know thinking about how do I drive purpose through you know doing a bakery has been a real challenge as well for me <laughs> um you know thinking about okay so then you know like what are we going to do now what you know are we going to create a robin hood army that's now going to distribute our leftovers to orphanages and to people that don't have food um you know like how do we build that in is it about creating a line of items that you know is less sugary and more gluten free or or, 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 you know, is it about keeping the best quality at all costs, um, you know, within within the bakery? So we, you know, so that's a fascinating, interesting journey that's kept us really busy as a family as well. And uh, mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. I, I just said I was going to just interject quick about side hustle. And that's something that no one should be afraid of. I think that you have your day job, but if you have a passion and you want to make it happen, start it as a side hustle and see where it goes. And I also love from your story that it's pushing your creativity in new ways. And I think that keeps you energized, taking on new projects, new areas of work that you didn't consider, I think keeps that energy and sustainability and it helps you to look at things in new ways. So I'm really inspired by that. And uh, hopefully I'll get <laughs> down to Nairobi and get to, to try some of this. You're absolutely welcome. Um, okay. Any parting words? Um, I mean, uh, look, I, I, you know, we, I've got a, we've got a very busy life um, in general. And I think when you're trying to pull and be true to all your passion, to try to deliver, be there, be a good mom, be a wife, um, be a, you know, like a, be an employee that's making a difference, that's inspiring others as well to try to do that. It's 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 very demanding. So I, I would say I was I would end by saying that don't underestimate the need for self care and finding ways to make sure that you are taking care of this mental health, that you are not burning out, that you are also stopping every now and again and saying, have I taken on too much? Or is this the life stage at which I'm at? Is that too much? And and it is okay sometimes to just stop and just build a couple of skill set, go paycheck to paycheck for a while until you get back into you know a space where you can allow some of this creativity to come through. I don't think the search for purpose should take over the ultimate purpose, which is first to care for yourself and care for the people you love. And I think for me, that's just such an important um, element that one should uh, should should acknowledge at all points in time. Because if you've taken good care of yourself, you'd be in a better place anyway to be able to input and impact your purpose. Well, thanks, Mary. I think that's great parting advice. You know, first start with yourself, start with those around you who love you. And from there, it can grow, grow your skills, get educated. Uh, and, you know, you never know where it will, where it will take you. Uh, but if you have that passion and you have those skills, you'll go, you'll go far. So I want to thank you, Miriam, so much for your time, for your energy, for your good vibes on, on the podcast today. Uh, I'll make sure I put some links in the episode uh, description so they can find out more about your work. Um, is there anything else you want to share? You know, anything you want to tell someone? I think you, you've given an inspiration of someone who's just getting started. I would say nurture your passion, nurture your 
place in you that is that that is the place that you know keeps your trust, your innovative, your desire to want to make a difference. Keep that nurtured because it's a really special place to be in. And then you know you don't take that for granted and don't because I think with all the disillusion, the difficulties, the the challenges, the partnerships that don't work, the setbacks, the fact that you will not be recognized at all times, that it will be difficult, and that people will look at you. But you know you have to constantly be able to just bounce back, get back into your feet and then saying, you know what, I am going to make a difference. Um, somehow by, by ensuring that I, I, you know, I am educated, I am, you know, I'm, I have nurtured that passion and I somehow will want to make a difference because I, I am ready. So that when that moment comes, you can take it in full confidence, knowing that you are ready to really be able to act upon that. I think, you know, and that's every day. That's in every day you're reading, that's in every day preparing yourself for that. And I think that never, never stops. The learning never, ever stops. Great. Thank you, Miriam, so much. Uh, I appreciate you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, much gratitude. Thank you, Miriam. But life still goes on. Get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side.